legislation and policy is, is words that were written by people and that are, are put into action by people. And, and we are people and we can rewrite those words and, and put that into action as well. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Agenda 23. This is going to be an extra special episode because we have two amazing guests with us. We're really excited about. First up, we have Ani Henry. Ani is the director and founder of Cultivation Lab and is a sustainable and local food systems consultant. And we also have Ricardo Salvador with us, who's the director and senior scientist of the Food and Environment Program of the Union of Concerned Scientists. So very excited to have these two with us today. It's crazy. Our episodes are pretty spaced apart. So every time we do another one, we're getting that much closer to the 2023 Farm Bill. I think when we first started this, it felt very far away. And now right. it feels like it's just around the corner. So we're excited to hear from these two and everything that they have to say about the upcoming Farm Bill. I thought maybe we could just start with a little introduction of what your day-to-day looks like for the two of you. What are you working on within the food systems realm? Let's start with Ricardo. Ricardo, do you want to start off here and talk about what you're dealing with? First of all, thank you very much for uh, inviting me to be on this and together with Ani. Um, what the day looks like at the Union of Concerned Scientists depends pretty much on what legislative season we're in. And as you've mentioned, we're in the very early stages of farm bill season. And so uh, our day looks like checking in as much as we can in this uh, virtual world with the key staffers on the Hill and with key regulators in the Department of Agriculture, and then doubling back with folks that we work with on the front line in communities and with others that have a stake in what agricultural policy is going to be. And uh, in conversation with lots of folks who could be parts of campaigns to change the structure of the Farm Bill, which is uh, part of the rich conversation I'm hoping to get into with you folks during this broadcast. Very good. Thank you. Ani? Yes, also, thank you so much for um, having us. Uh, This is something I've been looking forward to since you um, suggested it. And... um, a day at Cultivation Lab. It very similarly, it kind of depends on where we're at right now. Um, We're currently looking at some of the funding opportunities that are coming out um, from the previous Farm Bill um, because it is that time of year. Currently we're in uh, mid-April. And so a lot of um, the federal funding programs have opened up. And then there's also additional funding through um, the America Oh, the American Recovery Act and and things like that. The administration has been um, really um, pushing out some great new opportunities. Uh, And so we're looking at those and having discussions with other partners and collaborators about potential applications. Um, But we're also active in policy committees and um, just internal organizational discussions about reviewing how we feel about different programs and what our you know, um, priority areas are going to be in our focuses. And personally, um, this is my second farm bill season. And I've really been looking forward to this since my first farm bill season, which was in 2018. And um, just an incredible experience. Um, and having gone through this once, I'm, I'm really motivated to uh, encourage other people 
um, and share my experience and encourage them to get involved and, and help them to understand how uh, important the farm bill is and how we can engage and interact with it and how it impacts our everyday life. Ricardo, what, what are some things that are on the Union of Concerned Scientists about uh, for the that where we have a potential to make some significant changes in 2023 relative to what we've had in the past and what we have now? That is a very important question in this cycle of the Farm Bill because we are looking at a series of circumstances that are very unlike anything that we've ever had. So I'll just give you a very broad outline and then we can dig in as you are interested. So uh, first of all, uh, the set of circumstances that I'm alluding that are unlike anything we've ever seen before are that the climate, the climate crisis has become very real throughout uh, agriculture. Um, you still have some of the marginal discussions uh, where people tell you that uh, they don't want to hear what's behind climate change. But in general, people agree that we are seeing uh, more severe uh, and more violent uh, and frequent episodes of uh, climate uh, events that uh, make farming very uncertain. Uh, and uh, that's something that farmers and uh, folks that are invested in farmers want to see change because stability is what's required in order to make the long-term investments that large-scale industrial agriculture depends on these days. So climate change is one of the things that is driving the need to change the shape of the farm bill. The second thing is that we have uh, just been through two years of a pandemic. We don't really know what the future of this pandemic is going to be for all that many folks are interested in declaring it over. But it has unveiled a, a lot of structural vulnerabilities in the large-scale food and agricultural system. Thirdly, we're coming through this farm bill cycle at a time when the economic status of folks in agriculture is very, very high. So land prices are high, commodity prices are at historical highs. Uh, Congress has documented that uh, farmers, particularly commodity farmers, were overpaid by billions of dollars due to supposed market uh, trade losses uh, during the prior administration. And, they're going to have a very difficult case to make when they go before Congress to say that they need to continue to be coddled financially by means of the farm bill. So we also have been through an episode that has demonstrated that without labor throughout the entire value chain, our system does not work. Now, many folks might have been available or might have been acquainted with that concept in theory, but what the pandemic actually put into our face is that not only is that labor necessary, it is a form of labor which most people assume no longer existed in the United States, which is vulgarly exploitative labor, uh, wherein our immigration policy turns out to be our labor policy. It is the way in which we artificially keep prices of production low uh, in the entire value chain. And so I, I will go no further than just do those two four drivers, but those two, those four drivers make it so the kinds of conversations that we can now have about what ought to be in the farm bill and is not there right now, now are legitimate items of conversation in farm bill, whereas previously folk contented themselves in what uh, here in DC we call the normal ruts of the farm bill, which is basically, you know, what commodities are gonna get what. Right. Can we, can we broaden that conversation, policy conversation, out to what these are, are, are symptoms of, of a 
a basic failure in the industrial system of agriculture in general and their symptoms rather than problems that we have to deal with individually because i that's the way i see it i think uh, you know the industrial system of specialized standardized consolidates is inherently vulnerable to disruption it's, it's inherently lacking in resilience and most of our government programs basically are to to absorb the risk the inherent risk in this large-scale industrial agriculture so it seems to me like we have an opportunity to, to bring those issues together and say, look, we, we need to be looking at systemic changes in agriculture, like the changes that happened back in the 60s and 70s when we decided to industrialize agriculture. It's time to have policies to de-industrialize agriculture. But anyway, does that, you think there's any possibility of doing that? Well, you, you've put your finger on the big picture dynamic. And I, the only thing I can add to that description, John, is to say that uh, for all the reasons that you stated, the Farm Bill has existed as uh, almost a part of the business model right. of large-scale industrial agriculture to basically make it whole you know, right. when its system fails. And so when we talk about reforming the structure of the Farm Bill, in your framing, then that means let's question the way that industrial agriculture operates rather than just continuing to prop it up in the right, perfect right. way which uh, currently functions. Let's rethink the way that the agricultural system ought to work. Now, the second part of your question, of course, is sobering because to answer whether we're all actually gonna have an opportunity to delve into how the agricultural system should change and then put in place the legislation that will make that possible, is a raw power dynamic. It essentially is the question, can we build enough social power to counter the dramatic political power that the agribusiness industry has? It comes down to that. You know, the fact that food is very cheap, artificially cheap, right? Because if we were actually paying people the wages along the food chain, the prices might be higher. Do, do we think that this means that the government needs to subsidize different things in order for these people along the food chain, like you're saying, to be treated well and to be paid a living wage? Or does this mean that food should actually be a lot higher than it is and we just need to raise a living wage and do things so that people can actually afford to spend more of their, their paycheck on food? And I also just want to add to that, this is for both of you, and I also want to add to that, um, is, is valuing labor across the food chain, is, that, is there bipartisan support? for that issue? Do people across party lines believe that people should be paid adequately for the work that they do and treated well? Ani, why don't you start this time? Hear some from, some from you. It's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me, let me jump head first into that one. Um, actually, I, I think before I get into that, um, I would like to touch a little bit on um, context. Context, I think, is really important for this and understanding like where we started from and how we got here. So it's important to understand that the Farm Bill was first passed in 1933 as, um, you know, in as a result and to address the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl and to, to help to um, support efforts and incentivize farmers and give, uh, you know, um, food subsidies, you know, to a starving country at the time. Um, and in the 30 years after that, we got to a really stable place and then that's where they, um, the, the whole introducing the industrialization um, part came in where they took the, they tried to take the, the person, the individual farmers out of, you know, agriculture and, and make it this 
you know, commodity, um, you know, industry that we have come to know in this current generation. And um, in, in that sense, uh, I, I personally believe that, you know, people have lost track of why we have a farm bill and what the purpose of it is and how we provided for ourselves before. And it's like the talking points have become self-perpetuating um, without any real understanding of the underlying mentality. Um, so a couple of things that you hear a lot is like, you know, like we're feeding the world and, and things like that. And at one point those things were true, but they no longer are. We're not even feeding ourselves adequately. Um, and when it comes to, um, you know, would it, should we increase food prices? Or, um, you know, is it the, the living wage? Um, I mean, it, I think it's, it's really an artificial inflation um, because the money is not going to the workers and they still keep raising the prices on the food while they're getting the subsidies for both the work and for the labor. Um, and as Ricardo mentioned, you know, the immigration uh, discussion has been kind of, um, separated out as if it's some separate thing when it really is the the foundation of the labor that this industrial complex depends on um and um personally i i, I don't believe that um both sides are uh seeing it in the same way i think it's become overly politicized as far as um prioritizing the well-being and adequate payments of the workers and and I mean the living conditions in this day I mean there are literally stories current stories in the last you know month three months of literal slave operations um, occurring where individuals have had their passports um, confiscated and are forced into just inhumane living conditions without access to basic standard um, you know nutrition and safety and um, you know, protections, we're not even getting into the pandemic things, you know, but the exposures to pesticides and, um, you know, with the wildfires and things like that, there's little or no, you know, protections for these um, individuals who, in many cases, have spent almost their entire lives separated from their own families as a result of our immigration policies in order to support our, you know, agricultural industry. Um, and, and attempt to, to support their families at home. Um, and, and there's a lot of um, intersecting issues and intersections kind of my uh, sweet spot, but there's a lot of intersecting issues that um, have been um, politicized into not being talked about that are really at the crux of the conversations that we need to be having now. I think one thing we really need to look at is uh is the relationship between what the things we're talking about here in terms of changing would mean kind of at the production level and the processing level and, and what the results would be in terms of actual consumer prices. I know at the farm level, for example, that, that farmers are now are at the production level, it's only about 15% or less than 15% of the cost of food at the retail level. So let's say that you increase uh, the cost, what you're returning to the farmer at the production level, let's say as a consequence of dealing with conservation issues and labor issues and things of that labor. Let's say that the cost of production went up 50%. Well, if the rest of the system stayed equally efficient, that would only be 7% when you get to the retail level. 
that wouldn't be a 50% increase. It would only be 7% because it's 50% of 15%. Now I've looked at the figures there and, and also uh, uh, the same thing with respect to advantages in terms of profitability, but I haven't looked at, at the labor cost in the processing sector, but it would be interesting to look and say, if we increase the labor cost, what's paid to the workers in the processing distribution industry by 20% or something, what would that really mean in terms of consumer prices? And we'd probably find that, that any increase in consumer price level would be very affordable. And I think there's another thing we need to look at is we aren't going to solve the hunger problem or food insecurity problem by making food cheap. We've been doing that for 50, 60 years. We succeeded in making food cheap, but we still have more people that are food insecure now than we had back in the 1960s. And we've got a whole range of health problems. So we've, we've got to deal with the issue of food insecurity in a, in a different way than simply trying to make food cheap because there's always be people those of us that will bid a higher price for cropland to be used to produce fuel for our cars and exports for corporations than and low income people can afford to pay for you know for food to compete for the the land to produce food so anyway i think these are some things where you need to take into consideration when we're talking about the economic feasibility of paying people more money whether it's the farm level or in the processing sector one of the things that, Ani, that you've talked about and I'm very interested in is, is I think one of the things we need to do is shift more toward a local community-based food system. And one reason I say that is, is you can solve problems at the local community level that, that would be impossible for us to solve now at the state or federal level. But if we can find local solutions and prove that those work, then it seems to me that that's a good way to convince larger po our policymakers at the higher level. So I know you've been working in this area, so I'd like to hear from some of your ideas about that. And before you start, John, I just want to ask, when you say it's impossible to solve on the state or federal level, is that because it's gridlocked or they wouldn't know how to solve that in their own? Well, we don't have the political power at that level because yeah. most of the programs that we're more interested in now are kind of considered to be niche programs that you know, it may be nice for a few people to pursue, but it's not really a serious alternative to what we have now. But if we can find serious alternatives at the community level that really work in terms of providing food security and supporting local farmers and things of this nature, then I think we have a stronger argument for saying, okay, we ought to be able to implement those on a larger scale. We need federal funds to implement those on a larger scale and go beyond sort of pilot projects to begin to kind of prototype what the new agriculture would actually look like, what the new food system would actually look like. And then we have a vision that we can sell to the policymakers. You want to follow up on that, Ani? Um, a lot of it's based in a lot of the writings that you've um, published and that I have been um, following for a while um, with the food utility. And um, as we've discussed, the more um, expanded regional resiliency utility. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's not so much the new form of farming as uh, returning to the previous forms of production and, um, you know, uh, supplementing uh, that worked before and that will always work because, you know, there's, there's a human level scale of things that is really um, kind of like the, the natural breaking point. And, and, you know, this shift into the industrial agricultural model 
while it was uh, something that was made possible by the technology and the industrial revolution, um, is just really not sustainable. And as, as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's very um, brittle and, and prone to, as, as we saw with the pandemic and everything, um, to, to major influences on a global scale. Um, and so the regional resiliency uh, utility model that we've been discussing is, is really um, recreating a lot of those uh, local processing and uh, infrastructure elements that were eliminated um, in the last you know, 40, 50 years. Uh, and in doing so, not only are we going to diversify the, um, the resources that we have to process and distribute things, but we're also creating jobs and opportunities here in our communities. And, and so that's, that's, you know, offsetting the, you know, we're creating opportunities for people to make money to pay for their food, as well as, you know, the jobs, you know, to support the creation and distribution of that food within our communities, you know, um, and that's really what got me started in this was growing up food insecure and, you know, working um, to, to learn about food systems and things like that and, and realizing that there, it, it may seem, you know, small starting community gardens and things like that, but, you know, it's all of these small efforts or seemingly small efforts that um, are really the most sustainable in the long run. Um, I think I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Ricardo <laughs> speak to that or, because I know that um, I can get kind of into the weeds as far as some of the um, individual uh, like justice and equity type elements to that. Um, but I would be curious to hear what he has to add. <laughs> Good, All right, go ahead. Well, uh, yes, I agree with everything that you've mentioned, uh, Ani. Um, I, I would add that I, I think most people that would listen to a podcast like this are acquainted with the fact that agricultural activity is multifunctional. So you always get into trouble when you just focus on one aspect of agricultural activity. And what I mean by that is that an agricultural activity can be seen through the productivity aspect. It could be seen through the aspect of economic returns. It could be seen through the aspect of its environmental effect. It could uh, be seen through the aspect of its consumptive or degraded uh, effects on the environment, on soil, and so on. And it isn't one or the other. It's all of those things put together. It's always an optimization exercise. And the reason why I'm mentioning that first is that when it when it comes to local food, here I'm I'm going to be speaking as an agronomist. I think if we go to a model like that, we can solve a lot of problems, or at least make progress on a lot of issues that appear to be problems right now, which I think are basically cultural, historical legacies, and also just constraints of the mind. So the reason why I'm appealing to agronomy is that here's a dirty little secret. Um, what it takes to produce the food that we actually eat. So think fruits, vegetables, nuts, tubers, that sort of thing, stuff that we grow and then can directly eat after a wash is very little land. You can produce a lot of edible food on very little land. Um, now that may produce some cognitive dissonance for folks that are accustomed to growing up and hearing consistently the drumbeat that we need to increase production because of all the hungry people in the world and we're not making any more land and how are we going to possibly solve that conundrum. We exist in a reality of such surplus production 
that the major job of most commodity boards is try to invent uses for the surplus. Yeah. And most farmers are trapped in that conundrum as well because they produce stuff that is of such low value that they actually need off-farm jobs in order to be able to make the economic circle work for them. And so that's important when it comes to local food, because what you often hear is that it's toy agriculture. You know, the prior administration used that line a great deal to marginalize and discount any advocacy in favor of local and urban agriculture. When in fact, these are the multiple things that I think local food can help us with. So first of all, the large tracts of land that are currently devoted to this low cash value surplus commodity production are parcels of land that were appropriated by federal policy, by military campaigns. They were stolen, they were extracted from the original uh, stewards and now have been trapped in generational schemes that essentially build the wealth of the people that own that land. There's uh, I think a very direct way of dealing with that, given that the government created that particular uh, uh, condition. But let's say that that's not changeable. So if you want different people to enter into agriculture with different ideas, with different markets, with different practices, then you need to find different places where you're gonna conduct that agriculture that welcome different people with those different ideas and different markets and so on. There's a great deal of potential in urban, peri-urban, ex-urban areas on relatively small plots of land when you compare to the thousands of acres, say that a wheat producer thinks that they need in order to be able to sustain one single family that can actually be produced to feed neighborhoods, to feed large numbers of people. And that could be a competitive scheme if we supported it through a number of different ways, through first of all, our demand for that, because we understand that we're supporting new people and new practices, but also in the same way that, that folks that receive land from the government feel that they're entitled to low credit loans from the government and technical support from the government and cheap education from the government, think that that's just part of their uh, birthright. We ought to be investing in this kind of more resilient, more productive food producing system. If there's any case for where the government actually needs to be investing, it's in the public interest, you know, actually producing goods rather than degrading the environment, making people sick and keeping farmers basically in a, in a mode where they can't make a living out of that, that uh, commodity scheme. So that's my perspective on local food and the potential for productivity there is enormous. We just haven't invested in it. So do you yeah. think that the millions of acres of that are growing commodities, corn, soy, wheat. Is there ever a possibility of those transitioning to vegetable crops or other things? Or do you think you're saying basically farmers who wanna do something different will have to find different land as opposed to turning over that land? Uh, well, uh, so you're going back to uh, sort of the tease uh, that I think that there's a very direct way of, of actually dealing with what appears to be a, a conundrum. So let's step back and think what does the world actually need from us right now? I started out your question around uh, what might change the conversation about the Farm Bill by mentioning climate change first. It is an existential threat to humanity. So 
if you're in agriculture and you're thinking, what can I do about this? The marginal conversations right now are around how you make, say, row cropping agriculture a little bit less bad, you know, sprinkle on some cover crops here and there and so on. And very few of those methods actually will have any permanence. Uh, you know, by definition, annual row cropping requires that you disrupt frequently. And so the processes that you need to actually stop emitting greenhouse gases and then reverse that dynamic and actually capture carbon and biomass and soil organic matter are dramatically different than anything that row crop agriculture can do at large scale. Instead, what we need is land use change. What we need is for the original vegetation that built the, the prairie soil and that built the organic matter that captured massive amounts of biomass. And that is compatible with the previous point that I just made. A lot of the land that is now in agriculture came into an agricultural mode at a time when our productivity per unit of labor and per unit of land was low. That is no longer the case. We need to be behaving in the 21st century with the knowledge of the 21st century and not supporting the 18th and 17th century uh, models. And so my direct answer to your question is that land ought to be rewilded. And even that right. is a fairly elitist perspective because that means that would benefit those of us that are doing well in society. Think about the point that I made earlier, that land is stolen. That land ought to be returned to its original uh, stewards. And so the land needs to be rematriated. And if they return it to the vegetation that was there previously, that will suck up carbon in the scale that we actually need to deal with the climate crisis. Now, obviously, there's a whole lot more to say about that, but let's put the two pieces of this conversation together. Most people who have not thought about this too much would then say, but what about our food supply? That's when we need to remember. If we did put all of that land into actual food production, the reason it's not in food production right now is that we would overwhelm the uh, markets for actual right. food if we put all That's of that right. land that is currently in commodity production into fruit and vegetable production. So again, you know, another dirty little secret of national agricultural uh, policy, the reason why uh, Western growers and, you know, uh, other interests that represent California fruit and vegetable producers are perfectly content not to get direct subsidies from the federal government and allow Midwestern and Southern farmers to receive uh, those subsidies is that there is this direct, it's not so much tacit, there's this direct agreement. A very small amount of land in the Midwest put into annual summer uh, uh, vegetable crops and into the temperate uh, fruit crops that can be grown in the Midwest would dramatically increase the supply and therefore reduce the prices for everyone for those products. California farmers don't want that. They're perfectly happy with everybody else in the country producing these low value commodities and getting government help to make their economics work. But they sell a high value perishable uh, set of products and they wanna keep that. So the tacit agreement is you guys do your commodity thing and we won't mess with you. Just don't grow fruits and vegetables and don't mess with us. So that's basically what's at the core of the, of the uh, you know, what appears to be a conundrum of what to do with land. We don't need all that land in agriculture. That's the raw truth. Right. And I think that would, that would deal with the uh, livestock and meat issue as well. Precisely. Because you could go back on the, on the land that's, it's um, maybe not, not farm, but it goes back to kind of something like the native prairie and, and the native uh, uses. And so you have livestock and you can have poultry and various other things. You know, hogs and chickens were basically scavengers if you let them do what they want to do. And, and the other, um, you know, 
the uh, livestock, the the sheep and the cattle, they're they're uh, herbivores, I guess is what you call them. But they they basically live on that. So if we went back to more natural systems, I've often argued when you talk about should we eat less meat or more meat, I say we we need to develop a sustainable regenerative. Uh, agricultural system and then eat whatever comes out of that we we need to recognize that we need to accommodate nature first and then we accommodate ourselves to nature and if we're a healthy part of nature then we'll be healthy along with the health of nature uh, so i think if you i agree with you completely we don't need all the land we're needing now to produce food so we could go to a regenerative agricultural system pasture based grass-based forage-based system on a lot of that cropland and still produce some meat, milk, and eggs for the protein, I'll diversify the protein source and meet most of our food needs on a relatively smaller acre. Yeah, and let me just insert, since you've made that point, John, that there's really good recent scholarship that has actually looked at that question. The, basically, the frame of the question is, how much of the population of the United States could we feed if we went to more regional food production systems? And of course, what you just mentioned right now is a huge variable. It is, well, how high on the food chain are we talking about here? How are we eating determines how many of us could eat on a regional basis. One of the best studies is of a team out of Tufts, published just, uh, I think, two years ago, maybe three years ago, by Julie Kurtz and colleagues. And, and basically, their answer is the majority of the population of the United States could be fed by production that's local and regional with the exceptions being in places that have very low inherent uh, net primary productivity. So the Southwest desert, for instance, is one example uh, of that. And, but then of course, nobody's arguing for food autarky. We're just talking uh, against the the tremendously wasteful and efficient industrial system we have right now. Well, and to um, illustrate, you know, your point, Ricardo, here at Cultivation Lab, we're based um, at the convergence of the St. Mary's, the, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Uh, <laughs> it's like right outside my doorstep. The St. Mary's, the Maumee, and St. Joseph Rivers. And, you know, the waters that flow through this region um, go to the coast, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Great Lake. And the location where I'm at currently um, was the footprint of the original uh, Kikiunga village, um, you know, the home of the Miami nation. And um, I'm in the process of... Um, sort of rematriating um, and, and regenerating this land here just in this property as an urban agricultural site and demonstration and community engagement site, uh, demonstrating um, what can, ha- like the quantity that can be produced in a very small space uh, with a, a moderate amount of investment, but also um, been testing the soil to uh, determine baselines for uh, where the soil is at when we acquired this property after being um, a home uh, for over 110 years in, the, in a residential area, you know, the soil was essentially dust when we started. And so um, taking soil samples and doing testing um, as a baseline, and then we've been uh, working the process of you know, revitalizing the soil and feeding it and, and allowing it to rest. You know, we, the first thing we did was to strip the grass away. And, and, and yes, we did have to disturb the land because it had been compacted into just almost an asphalt. Um, but it was, it was literally dust devoid of really any life or nutrients. And so for the last two years, it's been resting and we've been feeding it and, and, and gradually working it and, and bringing it back to life. 
and we're, you know, getting ready to really start um, building beds and, and planning out the polyculture that we're going to have here. And in this small, you know, footprint, you know, this single lot, um, the amount of food that we can produce, but then when it comes to the meat and dairy, um, you know, with a couple of heritage uh, conservation breed ducks, we could have, you know, meat, eggs, and uh, help in the garden. And then, um, you know, we've been talking with people about, you know, raising, you know, bunnies uh, for meat and for fiber. And they're a very small footprint, very highly nutritious, and, you know, uh, rapidly producing, you know, um, market. And, and also, there's a lot of uh, interest in it because of the hormones and antibiotics and everything else um, that have really just um, completely saturated the commodity meat, you know, market um, because of CAFOs and industrialized production. Uh, a lot of people are turning to alternatives like duck and rabbit because it doesn't have those hormones and chemicals and, and isn't produced on that large scale and, and is in a lot of ways a lot healthier for us and for the environment. So we're, you know, we're trying to demonstrate that here in this small scale and, and really, you know, starting those conversations within the communities uh, so that we can really start to shift those conversations away from what people uh, think that they know about the food that's produced and, and what we can produce ourselves. And then also having conversations about micro parcels of properties, you know, within urban and peri-urban um, areas, there's really quite a bit more property and land that is just being um, ignored or neglected um, that with the proper support and incentivization, you know, could be put into use um, in, a, in a variety of ways and not just in production because there's a lot of benefit to be had for passive uh, development as in, you know, doing tree nurseries of timber and fruit trees and, and other things. And here in our area, that's part of the proposal that I've been, you know, working on because at the confluence of these three rivers, we have a lot of land that is not commercially developable because it is a floodplain. But it is, it would be ideal for passive green um, development and uh, usage like nurseries or um, even some, you know, growing areas and things like that. So um, those are a lot of the conversations that people haven't had before and um, haven't been really willing to have because, as Ricardo mentioned, you know, it's not profitable. And, and when you really get down to, you know, the climate problem and the food system problem and, you know, the immigration and everything, it's a profit thing. It's about money, you know? And, and you know, for me, the, the fundamental motivator for, you know, the work that I'm doing is, is about, you know, nurturing the community um, and really changing that conversation away from, you know, all the things that we're doing because it's a profit margin issue rather than um, an environmental or uh, social benefit. Yeah, one of, one of the causes as an economist that I try to get back to is the economy is supposed to be a means to some greater end. It's not supposed to be the end that you're pursuing. You know, it, it, it has to be economically feasible, but that doesn't mean you have to maximize profits. It means you ought to do the things that we really want to do and they need doing and then find an economic way of making that work. Uh, rather than saying, okay, we're going to pursue profit, let's pursue something that's more important than profit, which is people and the quality of life and food and health and nutrition and all of these sorts of things. And then let's find a way to make that work economically. That is essential, but that shouldn't be the driving force. And even if it was the driving force, I think 
we don't count all of the costs of the harm. Nobody is counting, you know, what the climate crisis will do to people and how much that will cost. But I totally agree with you, John. There's a Rockefeller study that Rockefeller study come out in the last year that basically come up with an estimate that said that the total cost of food production in economic terms, ignoring all of the, the social inequity and injustice and destruction of environment for the long run, but purely in economic terms, was three times as great as what we're paying for food. That was the estimate that, that they made. And so uh, even if that's in the ballpark, it says we're not paying but about a third of the total cost of economic cost of food. And we're ignoring the social and long run ecological costs entirely. Yeah. Unless you can put an economic value on them, they don't count them. Well, there's lots of things that we have to do for nature and have to do for humanity as a whole. It doesn't have an economic value on it. It's things that we have to do. I, I tell people all the time, I said, if you had to, to pay people in society for everything they do for the greater good of society and humanity, the economy doesn't create nearly enough economic value to offset that. You couldn't compensate them. There's just lots of things that we have to do because they're the right thing to do. And we need to get that across to people and then find an economic means of doing the things that we ought to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I, uh, I just want to point out about that Rockefeller study that they deliberately made the most defensible assumptions every time that they arrived at a point where an assumption was needed or where data needed to be interpreted. So the upshot of that is that that three times uh, greater cost for food than we're actually paying uh, is actually a very conservative estimate, uh, you know, very, very likely underestimates how, how uh, much we're cheating in terms of the actual cost of food. And that beautiful sentiment that you've expressed, John, about the way that the economy ought to, to work, which I think is very important coming you know, from, from you particularly, it, it reminds me of the observation that the uh, economy exists to serve people, not the reverse, right? And I, I, I don't know whether that was a Herman Daly statement. It sounds very Herman Daly, but I just have never tracked yeah. who actually wrote that down. But I, I'm always reminded of the wisdom of that observation. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of the foundation of classical economics before we got into trying to turn economics into something that we could measure with statistics and mathematics. And yeah. We, we wanted to take all the feeling, all the humanness out of it, all of the feeling, the social values, ethical values. You had to get rid of all those so we could measure things and quantify them and build statistical models. Uh, but we throw we threw the good part of economics out, you know. Yeah, the, the famous physics envy. Yeah. Mackenzie, you had some other things on your agenda here today we need to probably get to before we finish you. Yeah, we do. But I wanted to, I know, Ani, you were going to, you wanted to dive into the weeds a little bit on the justice and equity lens. So I want to give you a chance to do that and just ask whether on a local level or a federal level, where, like, how you're feeling about these. I, I think in the past couple of years, there's at least been more recognition of the harms that you know, the USDA has caused um, to farmers of color and, and so on and so forth. So just if you feel like changes are actually happening or, you know, uh, how much hope that you have that, that some of these policies can actually be implemented in the farm bill or, you know, things that you're seeing on the local level. Wow. <laughs> so many things are going through my mind right now, but yes. Um, so 
my first experience in the farm bill was in 2018 um, in the previous administration. And as far as I know, um, that was uh, a very unusual um, farm bill season for different reasons than why this one is so unusual, um, but was very, um, very, very different from previous farm bill seasons um, due to a lot of the influences and stances of the previous administration. Um, and uh, that was really challenging. And I have hope because even in as challenging of a season as we had in the last Farm Bill, we did manage to secure some really, really incredible and really important um, wins and uh, in, in like permanent you know, funding for a lot of programs, you know, uh, they might have tried to dismiss them as toy programs. We preferred the terms tiny but mighty because it really is a tiny part of the farm bill and a tiny part of our overall budget that has such a mighty outsized influence. And that's the mentality that I have. Um, and, you know, having seen what we were able to accomplish in such an adverse um, environment and climate, um, I'm absolutely very hopeful and optimistic about, you know, future farm bills. Um, additionally, I have every intention of continuing to be involved and um, doing everything that I can to um, encourage others uh, to pursue and to look into um, engagement or, you know, expanding their engagement and involvement in these discussions. And to be honest, I, I really feel like there's also um, a significant generational um, opportunity here, which I think, you know, is, is represented by this podcast itself. Um, you know, where we have um, a new generation that's grown up in this environment um, that's, you know, coming into um, an ability to be involved and, and influence these sort of legislations. And um, for me, it comes down to it's like legislation and policy is, is words that were written by people and that are, are put into action by people. And, and we are people and we can rewrite those words and, and put that into action as well. And just breaking it down into like that simple, you know, mentality um, is what keeps me from getting too overwhelmed. Um, and uh, it's there. There are definitely some disheartening aspects uh, to the political and um, like legislative uh, environment that we have to work with. Um, but that's why it's important for us to have these conversations and, and to really um, put as much effort and resources as we can into empowering and building and activating um, the bases and you know the different groups throughout our community um, and country to really push for those things. Um, Sorry, I keep getting distracted because I'm thinking back to what Dr. Archard was saying about economics. And I keep, I, I just want to say like, I'm not an um, economist and I don't have a way with the numbers and research that these gentlemen do have, but there's a, a common sense aspect to um, looking at these systems that has just been kind of eradicated in, in favor of <laughs> some of these numbers and metrics, you know, and, and for example, um, the proposal that we're looking at where it would seem that it wouldn't make sense and it would be expensive to do some of these things, but when you um, put it into a regional aspect, then you're cutting down the greenhouse emissions from transporting things. You know, you have the ability to turn things that are currently waste into input and uh, to reduce overall waste that's going into landfills 
you know, that's also contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. And, you know, one of those initiatives is, you know, the proposal that I'm working on for the climate smart commodities, you know, uh, trying to decarbonize our electric infrastructure by taking, you know, waste lumber and, and trees that are um, currently just being chipped up and dumped into landfills and processing that into timber and into wood pellets. And then that becomes um, a more environmentally sustainable um, energy production, but we can also generate those by uh, eliminating um, invasive Bradford pears and things like that, uh, which right now there's um, a lot of environmental costs of those things and people are getting paid to take them out and chip them and dump them in the landfills when we can take that and turn it into a energy producing um, product that can help to uh, diversify our regional energy production while at the same time putting a, a invasive into a positive use. So I, I don't have the economic background to be able to quantify all of that, but there's the practical reality of, of how that makes sense. Um, and it takes that kind of non-conventional thinking and, and that willingness to approach what seems like a, a the, the standard way that things are done and, and do it in a slightly different way. We can really achieve some transformational impact um, without increasing like the cost exponentially and also creating jobs. Um, and, and in my aspect, I'm hoping to try to get opportunities like that created for new and beginning and minority and other disadvantaged communities. The biggest challenge to that is that we don't have the infrastructure, the um, administrative and right. organizational infrastructure and support necessary to both um, put together the proposals and the applications and submissions uh, that are necessary given the way that the current system is set up, but then also the reporting and documentation requirements for federal funding are intense <laughs> to say the least. And um, even, you know, I've, I've been talking to and, and working with local governments even and regional governments and, and they're, um, they're overwhelmed at the concept of applying for some of these opportunities because of the, the amount of documentation and reporting that's required. And so if the existing, you know, governmental and local organizations are unwilling to do that when they have such you know existing infrastructure it's almost impossible for new and beginning and socially disadvantaged um proposals to really be successful or, or even to get submitted um so that's something that um i'm really focusing on as um a conversation that we need to have when it comes to these programs in the farm bill right. it's great to have caveats right. and set-asides and carve-outs um and funding for uh, new and beginning farmers and non-traditional right. things, but if we're not providing um, the supports in administrative and uh, organizational capacities, then we're really not creating a valid route for pursuing that. It's, it's really more for show. <laughs> and then that's when we end up with all the money left in the bank accounts going, well, we made all this money available and no one took it. And it's like, well, we also made the rules in the process so complicated and arcane and, and convoluted that it's almost impossible for anyone to actually maneuver that. And the few that are generally tend to be those who are already getting money and have plenty of resources to throw at just doing that. Yeah, thank you. I know we're reaching the end of the hour here, but 
yeah, I would love to hear from you both if there's just any specific policies that are on your mind that you're trying to push for, um, whether things that are you feel are realistic or, you know, there's some moonshot things that, that you're hoping to, to see, whether in this legis legislative session or we're talking about the, the farm bill. But um, yeah, there's a couple of things that you have your eyes on in the future. Well, I can mention something that I hope uh, listeners take us up on. If we go back to the beginning of the conversation, we talked about a power dynamic uh, for those of us that are attempting to structure a different farm bill to serve broader purposes and to serve different people. And the reality of the way that the farm bill works is that, as I mentioned, it, uh, it progresses along very familiar ruts. It really, for the amount of money that it involves, it involves relatively few players. And the places where they conduct their business are typically uh, behind the proverbial closed doors. It's not a conversation that is of interest or available to a large segment of the population. So for us to be able to generate the political visibility and power to be able to overcome the interests of people that see the farm bill and see contracts worth billions of dollars or money flows worth billions of dollars to them and therefore who will organize and preserve and protect those if not increase those flows, we need to have numbers. We need to have folks that typically have not seen themselves as involved in the farm bill speaking to their representatives and completely shocking them with questions about what they expect to see in the farm bill and what they would like that legislation to do, what current problems they want to see solved for people who currently are not served by the nation's agricultural and, and food policy. So, you know, this, this ranges across the board because we're all affected by this policy. We're just not all aware of it. So if, if we could enlist the, uh, the engagement and the aggressive participation of folks that don't normally pay attention to the farm bill, it will be very helpful in terms of that political dynamic. It will take organizing. And so get a hold of the groups that do this work. So Union Concerned Science is one of those, but we're not uh, the only one. Uh, the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition is another very important organization that does this sort of uh, reformist uh, farm bill work. So that's what I would encourage people to do. That's so perfect for our listeners. And I think it's crazy how the farm bill affects everyone and we all eat. And yet most people don't even know what it is. And so any way to make it easy and simple and, you know, ways for people to take action, that's great. Yeah, to echo Ricardo's um, comments, NSAC is a great organization. I had the pleasure of, of working with them um, on the last farm bill. And that, that was really my entry into um, a lot of these conversations and and the members the member organizations of NSAC are are really the the power of NSAC and and it's the most incredible people that I've ever met and and I say that with all you know honesty um but there are also organizations like Heal and Food Chain Workers Alliance that I would like to encourage people you know if you are wanting to get involved but you're not sure where and you don't know exactly what you can do and you don't have a lot of time um just growing your awareness and your understanding you know listening to podcasts like this but then if you're on social media um especially twitter following people like ricardo um but also um heal and food chain workers alliance and 
I mean, there's, there's just so many um, great organizations that are doing work and that have a presence and that are uh, sharing updates and information and, you know, just starting to get involved in those conversations so that you are aware of what's happening. Um, and then in this administration, they've, they've really made a lot of efforts to um, establishing new commissions and advisory panels on equity and different things like that. Um, and investing um, time and effort into, uh, you know, hopefully attending some of those public sessions or submitting comments um, or otherwise getting involved. Um, it, it makes a bigger impact than you realize um, because there's just really so few people that, that show up that are not um, already involved in it. And um, it, it can also be highly entertaining. And just for a side note, uh, showing up at a corn and soybeans <laughs> meeting to have a conversation with one of my members of Congress, I'm pretty sure like they were shocked. Um, I was invited. Um, and I think he was, um, I'm not sure who was more surprised, uh, the member of Congress or the corn and, corn and soybeans farmers who found themselves really wanting to talk more to me than to the member of Congress, because I was down there talking about, you know, uh, we didn't even get into the conversation about, you know, land access and ownership issues. And, and the reason I went down there was because, you know, we have just this um, invisible epidemic of, you know, land ownership rights being, you know, stripped away and bought by other countries and things like that. And, and all of that is underlying a lot of these other issues. So as a, as a beginning farmer trying to get land, um, it's a huge challenge when you realize that not only um, you have to compete with the commodity farmers, but then you have to compete with multinational corporations who have literally unlimited, you know, bank accounts um, in which to purchase these, you know, properties and then turn them into corporate uh, wastelands. So um, getting involved in the conversation is, is really the key thing. Uh, and it kind of snowballs from there. Yeah, I think the important thing is to get across to everybody that, you know, everybody has something that they can contribute to the process. And it's just, just a matter of finding something that fits the individual in terms of your interests, things that you're passionate about. And you can play a role in the bigger picture by focusing on the things that are of interest to you and they're passionate about. And, you know, the internet is a wonderful thing in terms of finding information. So if you go on the internet and Google whatever your interest area are and, and just ask the question, how do I get involved in policy process for this or that or something else? You'll have all sorts of organizations pop up. Yeah, that's great. I think that's a great note to end on. I appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. I think it's been an interesting discussion. So thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, what a privilege to be with all of you. Thanks for having us. And thanks for, for doing this podcast. It's something that uh, is really needed, this opportunity, um, not only for us to have these conversations, but, but really uh, to bridge that gap between the generations uh, and share that information and yeah. Sorry, I get really emotional because um, this is so close to like everything, you know, growing up being food insecure, I felt helpless and um, finding NSAC and being able to get involved in the farm bill, uh, that's really been empowering because I feel like I've been able to take back some of that control of my life and um, understanding of the circumstances and, and it's given me a purpose, you know, to be able to work on these things and, and to see really you know concrete changes um so thank you i feel more hopeful than our last conversation i felt like 
our last episode was, felt dismal. Uh, I, I came away from it feeling a little bleak. So I'm happy today to, to feel more hopeful and really thankful for, for the work that you both do. Thank you. Thank you.